service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Sean Penn are insane. He once held a photographer upside down from a ninth-story balcony as payback for hiding in his hotel room. He escaped from a prison in Macau, after which a member of the Beatles successfully negotiated with triad gangs for his freedom. He corresponded with serial killer Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker, while in lockup in L.A. County Jail. And despite having a legendary temper that got him into trouble more times than not, Sean Penn made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of James Harrison singing, I've lost my heart, but I don't care, in 1908. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Robert Zemeckis' Back to the Future. And why would I play you that specific slice of 1.21 gigawatt cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on August 16th, 1985. And that was the day that Sean Penn married Madonna on a Malibu bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. An indelible moment of the 80s era Hollywood that kicked off more than two tumultuous years of fights, arrests, and lockups. On this episode, Madonna, Ninth Story Balconies, Prison Breaks, The Night Stalker, and Sean Penn. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 4, Hollywoodland. Martin Sheen thought for a moment that he was back in the shit. The choppers circling in the sky above Malibu took him back, nearly 10 years in the past, to the Philippines. The blades spinning high up in the air reminded him of the blades of the ceiling fan in the tiny godforsaken room in Manila. He felt the phantom ache in the knuckles of his right hand, where the glass shards of that mirror had sliced him open when he put his fist through it. 
That take was 100% real. The blood, the agony. Now Sheen didn't serve in the military for real, but he served on the set of Apocalypse Now. And between the punishing typhoons and his ill-timed heart attack, the experience of making that particular Francis Ford Coppola film was a tour of duty that he'd sometimes rather forget. The helicopters were getting closer now. They hovered low, the sound of their blades throbbing like unstable weather. Christopher Walken said he thought they looked like dragonflies. It was surreal. The whole ordeal was surreal, like a Fellini film or a circus, literally. Tom Cruise mingling with Cher and David Geffen. David Letterman rubbing elbows with Diane Keaton. Andy Warhol snapping Polaroids. Curried oysters and fresh Hawaiian fish on platters catered by none other than celebrity chef Wolfgang Puck. Altogether, at a $6.5 million clifftop mansion on Point Doom, surrounded by neighbors like Johnny Carson and Bob Dylan. There was even a giant tent erected over a tennis court that doubled as a place for celebrities to hide from the paparazzi. On August 16, 1985, Sean Penn's marriage to Madonna was an epical moment for 1980s Hollywood. The bad boy from Bad Boys and the boy toy superstar brought together in holy matrimony. It was her 27th birthday, and he turned 25 the next day. Their love was as unlikely as it was incandescent, a bolt of lightning setting a lone tree ablaze in the middle of a storm. Sean was consumed by it. Just seven months earlier, in January, he visited the set of the music video for Madonna's latest single, Material Girl. January was also the month of the release of The Falcon and the Snowman, the Cold War thriller Sean had made with his buddy Tim Hutton. It was yet another dramatic role that pushed him further away from the lovable stoner rep he earned with his role as Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Being on the music video set that day was galvanizing. He could say it was because the video's concept was a lengthy recreation of Marilyn Monroe's iconic number from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and as a student of classic Hollywood, it intrigued him. But if Sean Penn was being brutally honest, and Sean Penn was nothing if not brutally honest, Madonna was all that mattered. She was intrigue incarnate. That pink dress, those gloves that ran the length of her forearms, those diamonds sparkling around her neck, clearly a girl's best friend, and the eyeliner she used to accentuate the mole above her right upper lip. That was it. Aloha, future Mrs. Penn. Sean was in deep. Their romance unfolded in a slower fashion than many gossip fodder relationships. Sean took Madonna on honest-to-God dates in the early days, like they were courting in a Hayes Code picture. He couldn't handle the Manhattan-based club scene she'd come up in. He was too tough for that sort of thing. But Madonna was fresh off of a relationship with her career guru, John Jellybean Benitez, who was ready for a change. It was mutually beneficial for the both of them. In Sean, Madonna found a kind of blunt toughness, one that she could channel on stage and in her music as well as someone who did not care about the traditional trappings of celebrity. She could mirror that same toughness and use it for her own career. In Madonna, Sean found a person whom he could protect from those looking to infringe upon her privacy, or perhaps someone he thought he could control. He could protect on cue, control the situation, take charge in a heartbeat, which is what he did when Shutterbugs found the lovebirds hand-in-hand hand emerging from the Maxwell House Hotel in Nashville only days after Sean had proposed to Madonna. Those assholes wanted photos of the ring on her finger. They wanted one of Hollywood's hottest power couples to say something provocative and off the cuff, 
fat chance. Nashville was supposed to have offered a reprieve from this bullshit. Sean was in town to shoot at close range, a neo-noir passion project with his friend, director James Foley. The movie gave him the opportunity to act alongside not only his younger brother Chris, but their mother, the actress Eileen Ryan, who was lured out of retirement to star with her boys. Nashville was far away from the prying eyes of New York and L.A., or so Sean hoped. At the end of the day, it didn't matter, because these two goons from that rag the sun were going to get a hell of a lot more than they bargained for. As the photographers made their approach, Madonna pulled her baseball cap over her eyes and looked at the pavement. Out of sight, out of mind. Sean stood his ground, stood by his woman. Fuck these dirtbags. He didn't know how the rock got in his hand, it was just there. That kind of thing happened when things got real, when things escalated. You get heated, and then the next thing you know, there's a rock in your hand. Is that science? Maybe it's just karma. The photographers noticed the projectile and slowed their approach. Too late. Sean tossed it, threw it hard. One of those assholes turned the other way and the rock hit him in his cowardly back. Sean came in closer, fists swinging. He was like a wild dog, unchained. He grabbed one of those fuckers' cameras and began to beat him with it, over and over. Nearer the thing crack. Good. See what happens? That's what happens. Sean Penn was arrested later that night on misdemeanor charges of assault and battery. He was hauled out to night court, where he promptly made bail. He was back to work the next day. According to James Foley, he never talked about the incident on set. Megan Oakes, daughter of folk singer Phil Oakes and Sean's assistant on the shoot, said that the assaults had a chilling effect on everyone involved in the production. No one felt comfortable just walking up and talking to Sean, she remarked. And he kind of liked that. A few months and a no-contest plea later, Sean received a suspended sentence of 90 days and a $100 fine from a Nashville judge. But first, Sean Penn had a wedding to do. Nothing could ruin that day up on Point Doom. Not Nashville judges, not even the helicopters, though they tried. The six choppers hovered above, droning on so loudly that Sean and Madonna could barely hear each other's vows over their din. And you know what? Let them drone. Let them burn through gasoline up in the L.A. haze. Because whatever shots they were getting from those eyes in the sky weren't going to amount to much. Sean had made sure of that. Earlier before the ceremony, He'd gone out of his way to traipse down to the sandy beach at the bottom of the bluff to carve out a special message for those vultures. It was a message written in six-foot-high letters, clearly visible from the helicopter's vantage point, and also large enough that it would ruin the photos for public consumption. That brazen message written in the Malibu sand read, Fuck off. January, 1986. The jet foil left a haze of salty mist in its wake as it sped across the South China Sea towards Macau. It seemed to effortlessly float on the water. Sean Penn wished he could do the same, but nothing in this moment felt effortless. Standing on board, Sean nursed two distinctly different aches. The first was an occupational hazard. He had his trainer turned bodyguard to thank for that. Sean's knuckles hurt ever so slightly from the workout he just endured. Some industry types, producers mostly, like to use grip strengtheners to help relieve stress and tension. 
but Sean had always preferred boxing. It conveniently doubled as a form of anger management, and there were plenty of reasons to be angry. Halfway across the world with his wife, Madonna, on this ill-advised vanity project, the movie was quickly turning into the exact opposite of what Sean had expected. When George Harrison and his production company, Handmade Films, came calling with a period adventure called Shanghai Surprise, it seemed like a pitch-perfect feature for an it couple like the Poison Pens, as those bastards in the tabloids had christened them. Sean and Madonna thought they'd be Bogey and Bacall, cruising down the waters of an exotic countryside, their Hollywood glamour a sharp contrast to the rough-and-tumble scenery. Besides, saying no to the guy who wrote, here comes the sun, well, that would be a pity. The second ache was one that Sean was pretty sure one Humphrey Bogart had experienced all those years ago while on location for the African Queen. Like Bogey, Sean Penn didn't drink the water. He stuck to good old-fashioned bourbon. You couldn't do this shit sober. Sean thought of his father, the actor and director, Leo Penn, a couple of two-finger rise into his nightly bender, drowning his sorrows about a failed acting career ruined by the prying eyes of the House Committee on Un-American Activities and their infamous blacklist. Exile to the land of television in the 1960s and 70s, his endgame was always the same. Quote, to turn a worse piece of shit into a better piece of shit, unquote. You didn't have to beat Leo Penn to know that Shanghai Surprise was the mother of all pieces of shit. The director was in way over his head. The script was awful. And to make matters worse, locals took to fucking with the crew. They drove cars onto the set and the only thing that would make them go away was cash. Beetle George himself had made the trek from England to placate his two stars who made it known that they were unhappy. He booked them a gorgeous hotel room in the Portuguese-controlled city of Macau nine stories off the ground, far away from the riffraff, a fortress to relax and recuperate in without worry. When Sean stepped off the jet foil and into the room, his bodyguard at his side, it was like he stepped into an oasis of calm. Marble walls, fully stocked bar, a gorgeous view from the balcony, even a bouquet of flowers from the quiet beetle. The staff was on hand, ready to meet the couple's every need. So was security. Burly men who wouldn't have looked out of place with the triad gangs he saw regularly on the streets. He'd found it, solace, relief. His aching knuckles and midday bourbon hangover were the only things bothering him. And then, the closet door swung open. A flash went off. Sean's eyes blinked hard in reaction. It caught him off guard. He stumbled, struggled to regain focus. For a split second, he thought it was a muzzle flash. But once he heard the familiar sound of film spoiling, same sound that accompanied every single camera he'd ever smashed. He knew he'd been ambushed. Unbelievable. The photographer had been hiding in the room for hours and hours. Patient little motherfucker. It was almost impressive given how old the guy was. He'd clearly seen better days. Vulture gigs like that sucked the life out of you and this one was proof. All wrinkled skin and gaunt frame. Within seconds, Sean was on him. The guy went down, clutching his camera. It fell from his hands. He scampered backwards as Sean and his bodyguard advanced on him. He knew what was going to happen next. These two Americans were going to convince him that he'd gone on his last stakeout, but he wasn't prepared for exactly how they were going to do it. Sean's bodyguard grabbed the guy's left ankle. Sean gripped the right. And before the photographer knew what was happening, he was being treated to a view of Macau that only skydivers and suicidal bankers had ever seen. He was upside down, suspended in the air. He felt the blood rush to his head as it smacked against the balcony railing. The fall would kill him, he knew it. 
His mind raced as he wondered how crazy Sean Penn really was. He regretted hiding in that closet. It wasn't worth it. None of it was worth it. If he could just be given a second chance, he'd run off and leave Sean and Madonna and all the other Americans alone. But he didn't say any of these things out loud to his tormentors. The photographer, dangling from a ninth-story balcony while two men held onto his legs, screamed out loud for his life. It would have been nice if he spoke Portuguese, but honestly, it wasn't necessary. The process was universal enough that at this point in his life, he could grasp the basics without knowing a word of the local language. Security guards had witnessed his little stunt on the hotel balcony with the photographer, and now Sean Penn and his bodyguard were sitting in a jail cell. Except that little stunt, there was nothing little about it. And stunts were something you did on a movie set, by the book and under strict supervision. This was more like attempted fucking murder. Damn. Add to that, no one except for the hotel staff knew that they had been arrested. Sweat ran down Sean's face. Either nerves or the hell on earth heat. That was it. He was done. He knew it. The life of Sean Penn, as the world knew it, was about to end in a foreign jail cell. And even worse, his last film, Unfinished No Less, would be a turkey. So much for the legacy of the mighty Penn family. And then he noticed it. The cell door, it was open. It seemed too good to be true. Good, bad, didn't matter. Sean and his bodyguard were up and out. They tore ass down the hallway, other prisoners yelling and screaming as they ran past. Whether the screams were in solidarity or not, Sean didn't know and he didn't care. He just had to get out, out of jail, out of Macau. It took delicate negotiations between the movie's producers, including George Harrison and the Deadly Triad, who effectively ran the city to not only allow Sean to finish making the movie, but to return to America safe and sound. Later that summer, Shanghai Surprise hit movie theaters with a thud. The next year, Sean received a letter from the Portuguese government. It didn't specify the crime for which he was never convicted, but it gave him a blanket pardon nonetheless. He was free to come and go as he pleased. It was the last time he would ever get away with something so easily. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. There are many ways in which the city of Los Angeles differs from the city of Macau. For one, if you find yourself in a cell in LA County Jail, one lone ray of light creeping across the filthy floor you are unlikely to discover the door to said cell to be ajar. That shit just doesn't happen. LA County lockup is overcrowded and locked down tight. Fear lurks around every corner, in the form of inmates and correctional officers alike. Shouts of desperation echo down the long corridor, the hollow ring of metal on metal, noises lingering like tinnitus after a late night GNR set at the whiskey. It was August, 1987. Sean Penn glanced up at the ceiling of his cramped cell. Another sleepless night. There was no sleep in LA County lockup, just time. Time moved slowly on the inside. There was always too much of it. And just when you thought you were near the end of it, there was more, always more. The dominoes, however, the ones that had fallen just right to get him here in the first place, they fell fast. And when they weren't falling fast enough for him, Sean Penn helped knock him over. David Hawk Walensky was the first domino, and he'd fallen just around a year prior when he came in contact with Sean's fist at a place called Helena's. Helena's was Jack Nicholson's go-to watering hole in Los Angeles. In 
fact, it was most A-listers go-to watering hole at the time. Helena's was hush-hush. Photography was not allowed. Discretion was paramount. Annual memberships ran from $500 to $3,000. At Helena's, Prince famously put the moves on Rosanna Arquette while the song Kiss soundtracked the moment. Elton John and Rod Stewart tore up the dance floor. George Michael spun records from the DJ booth. On this particular night, in July of 1986, Jack was holding court, naturally. Sean and Madonna showed up expecting a night of bullshitting with the master, Jack Nicholson. Jesus, the stories he must have. But when Sean spotted Hawk from across the room, he knew the night was about to take a turn for the worse. That fucking guy. Madonna had told Sean all about him. Trouble. He played keys, wrote a hit for Shaka Khan. But when he tried to work on a record with Madonna, all he did was try to push his grubby mitts all over her. Sean knew he probably wasn't the only one, but that didn't make it any better. And it didn't prevent Sean from his knee-jerk reaction back when Madonna first told him about it. What do you do to a guy like that? You hop in your car, you hunt him down, you beat the living shit out of him, that's what you do. Madonna talked Sean off the ledge for hours. Hawk, on the other hand, remembered the whole thing differently. He simply gave Madonna a kiss on the cheek when she was leaving the studio one day. He hadn't thought much of it since then. At Helena's, as Hawk made his way across the room, it was all Sean Penn could think about. It was like a stovetop burner clicked on in his head, and the gas was flowing, cranked up nice and high, and all he needed was a lit match to come close so it could combust into a white-hot flame. Come on, Hawk, come closer, just a little bit closer now. Hawk was taller, beefier too, and maybe that was his age showing. But where other men might have been intimidated into standing down, Sean Penn saw a challenge to rise up against. Hawk got close enough so that he could extend his hand toward Sean. A handshake? No. Fuck off, you son of a bitch. How dare this guy make his wife feel uncomfortable? How dare he have the audacity to assume he could even be in her presence right now, much less his? The look on Hawk's face was all confusion. He glanced over at Madonna, his eyes through a lifeline. Maybe it was what Hawk had done, or maybe the way he passed it off as nothing, or maybe it was the look he was shooting over at Madonna now, like the two of them were allies or something. Suddenly, there was a loud pop, and Sean's knuckles ached again. Ached just like they had back on that jet foil headed to Macau. Hawk was on the floor. Sean advanced. Animal instinct took over now, neutralized the threat wherever it stood or wherever it laid. He picked up a chair and smashed it right next to Hawk's head. He didn't know it at the moment, but that volatile display of intimidation took the entire altercation up the ladder of the law, from a misdemeanor to a felony. Sean knew in his gut that he hadn't actually hit the guy with the chair. It was like a move you pulled on the set of an action film. You did it so it looked real, it felt real, but it was all for show. Or was it? Some days it was hard to tell what was show business and what was taking care of business. Sean Penn's work-life balance was a bit unbalanced at the moment. He was angry, he was paranoid, he could blame the intense research to prepare for his role in Dennis Hopper's new movie, Colors, in which he played alongside Robert Duvall as a beat cop on the mean streets of South Central LA. To get in the zone, Sean went on ride-alongs with a fourth-generation Irish cop named Dennis Fanning. Fanning was in the Community Resource Against Street Hoodlums Unit, better known by the acronym CRASH, which ruled the streets with an iron fist in the days before Rampart and Rodney King. Fanning was Sean's kind of badass. Sean watched as Fanning collared a perp who ran from an area where gunshots rang out. 
Sean couldn't help himself. He got in on the action, recovering the gun from the sidewalk where it had been tossed. Fanning chastised Sean for confusing being a badass with being a dumbass. Since he touched the gun, that meant Sean would be an accessory to the arrest in court, a plot twist that would get them both in trouble. And though he wouldn't admit it out loud, Sean did feel a little like a dumbass as he watched Fanning wipe his prints off of the piece. He decided to only handle the guns he was beginning to accumulate on his own. He left them all over the house. As the lines between Sean's character and colors and his real self blurred, Madonna noticed. Something was going to happen, though no one knew when or where. The random guy skateboarding on the set of colors had no idea what involved him. He rolled past the camera's frame, taking pictures of everything he saw. For a moment, it looked like a scene from a movie, maybe even this movie, some muscle-bound punk looking to pick a fight with a cop. But the cameras weren't rolling. Sean Penn wasn't posturing for Dennis Hopper. The fuck are you doing here? He shouted at the guy with the skateboard and the camera. Sean demanded the camera. The guy spat out his reply. It landed right on Sean's face, the spit merging with caked foundation and sweat. The uniform took over. Sean launched. The whole set broke into chaos, extras scattering, PAs and grips trying to break it up. Hops just standing there, surveying the scene, the bitter taste of craft service coffee hanging on his tongue. He got a good look at the guy after Sean was pulled away, covered in blood and bruises. Hopper had to admit, he admired his protege's craft, even though he knew the kid would wind up getting in trouble for it. The final domino to fall was the one Sean regretted the most. He drank well into the night, and then he got behind the wheel. On the road, he tried to make up his mind. Should he keep the night going or just head home and argue with his wife? In a haze, he ran a stop sign. A cop had been following him the entire time, noticing that he was drifting in and out of his lane. The judge gave him 60 days. The DA requested he do his time in LA County after they caught wind that Sean's attorneys were trying to set him up in a quieter place for his sentence. And so, here he was, staring at the ceiling of his cell, time marching slowly on, while his material girl wife gallivanted around the world, touring a record she named after his favorite phrase, True Blue. He wondered where she was right now, what the fans in that night's city had for a request. And then a guard approached his cell with a request of his own. One of the other inmates wanted Sean's autograph, but not just any inmate. Richard Ramirez, AKA the Valley Intruder, AKA the Walk-In Killer, AKA the Night Stalker, awaiting trial for a gruesome murder spree just across the hallway from Sean. And Ramirez had a note for the other famous inmate on his block. Sean unfolded the piece of paper. Ramirez had drawn a pentagram and a makeshift devil next to which he'd written, hey Penn, stay tough and hit them again. Richard Ramirez, 666. Sean decided to do one better than an autograph. He wrote Ramirez back. Richard, it's impossible to be incarcerated and not feel a certain kinship with your fellow inmates. Sean's note began, and then he continued. But I've done the impossible. I feel absolutely no kinship with you. I hope the gas descends upon you before sanity does. It would be a kinder way out. On September 17, 1987, Sean Penn was released from L.A. County Jail on account of good behavior after serving roughly half of his 60-day sentence. 
A few months later, his wife, Madonna, who had bounced back from Shanghai surprise with the slightly better received screwball comedy, Who's That Girl, filed for divorce. What actually happened next is hard to say, and accounts vary depending on who's telling the story. What's known for sure is that Sean Penn, fresh out of jail and back in the wild, reacted poorly to his wife's attempts to move on. It didn't help that she got cozy with John F. Kennedy Jr., who, despite disappointing her in the sack, provided ample fantasy material for someone who tailored her look after Marilyn Monroe. Or that she palled around with famed chick picker-upper Warren Beatty, right as they were set to make Dick Tracy together. Or that she showed off her close relationship with comedian Sandra Bernhard, which straddled the boundaries of flirtation. There they were on Letterman together, dressed full-on butch, talking about their experiences in lesbian bars for all to see. It was a cocktail of emotions that Sean Penn was perhaps ill-equipped to handle. Years of rumor and speculation would cloud whatever the hell it was that actually happened one night in 1988. And decades later, in 2015, the director-producer Lee Daniels offhandedly alluded to those rumors while trying to defend Terrence Howard, then the lead of the Fox primetime soap opera Empire, over allegations that the actor had committed domestic violence. Terrence ain't done nothing different than Marlon Brando or Sean Penn, and all of a sudden he's some fucking demon, Daniels told The Hollywood Reporter. Sean Penn, now one of the most critically lauded actors of his generation with Academy Awards for performances in Clint Eastwood's Mystic River and Gus Van Zandt's Milk, filed a defamation suit and demanded damages of $10 million. The lawsuit brought those rumors fully back to the surface, which both he and Madonna had done their best to forget. Madonna spoke out about the allegations for the first time in the nearly two decades since the divorce, claiming that they were and remained bullshit. What's likely to be bullshit is that Sean Penn ever hit Madonna with a baseball bat back in June of 1987, at least according to Gawker, which dug into those claims when the lawsuit against Lee Daniels was still headline news. That claim had emerged from the tabloids, and the supposed paper trail that these articles cited never materialized under any sort of scrutiny. What's murkier is what happened between the couple on December 28, 1988. The version popularized specifically by The People, a UK Sunday rag, is that Sean, in a fit of rage, scaled the walls surrounding the Malibu house that he used to share with his soon-to-be ex-wife and broke in. And then Madonna had supposedly given the staff a day off, and he found her inside where he allegedly tied her to a chair with a rope, electrical cord, twine, leather straps, whatever he could get his hands on, and tormented her for hours. As the story goes, somehow, either through persuasion or a feat of daring, Madonna was able to get to a sheriff's station who saw the condition she was in and promptly went to the house to arrest Sean. Most of what information remains about that day comes from Bill Sweeney, a sheriff who claimed he was one of the first people to see Madonna in the aftermath. In 1991, Sweeney told a biographer that Sean had committed a, quote, unique and specific type of violence, unquote that was shrouded by privacy laws when it came to public disclosure and prosecution. As the biographer noted, each was a specific type of sexual violence. It was a very serious matter, Sweeney had said. Quote, it was something that, if prosecuted, would have had great implications, unquote. Madonna refused to comment on any of it, dancing around the question when she was pressed in an interview in 1989. To this day, it remains hearsay. But in the same year that Sweeney's account emerged, Sean Penn spoke to Playboy magazine where, in the words of the writer, Hollywood's bad boy actor opened up in a candid conversation. Sean claimed the fuss was simply about the guns he kept around the house. 
Madonna had voiced a concern to the local authorities that if she, the estranged wife, showed up at the house, something horrible would happen to her involving all those guns. Or, as Sean put it when speaking to Playboy, she was worried she would get, quote, a very severe haircut, unquote. The SWAT team busted in through every door of the house, fully prepared to find some violent standoff scene inside, but all they found was Sean sitting at a table eating cereal. And Madonna never filed any charges, and Sean Penn was never arrested. Bill Sweeney, at least, continued to tell his side of the story. He offered up more details to Madonna's second unauthorized biographer. According to the lieutenant, Madonna escaped Sean's clutches and ran to her 57 Thunderbirds sitting in the driveway, where she called the police from a car phone. As Sweeney's story goes, Sean flew out of the house after her, slamming his fists against the car's windows while Madonna talked with officers on the phone. And when she was finished with the call, supposedly she hung up and made her way to the station where her appearance shocked Sweeney. Sweeney had said that when Madonna staggered into the station, she was distraught and crying with makeup smeared all over her face, and Sweeney said he hardly recognized her as Madonna the singer. She was weeping, her lip was bleeding, and she was all marked up. She had obviously been struck, that's what Sweeney had said. He also said that, quote, this was a woman in big trouble, no doubt about it, unquote. But was that the truth? Sean Penn, of course, and Madonna both claim otherwise. And Sean Penn claimed a legal victory in 2016 when his lawsuit was withdrawn following an apology and retraction from Lee Daniels. But a murky haze still hangs over the events of that night back in 1988, when the world's most famous pop diva and her ill-tempered husband fully dissolve whatever relationship remained between the two of them. And no matter the amount of fame and accolades that Sean Penn has accumulated over the years, the humanitarian work, the Oscars, his work behind the camera, He's never fully escaped the specter of the Hollywood bat boy, a harmful euphemism that makes light of men who raise hell and cause chaos on and off set, of artists whose bright talents and fierce tempers perhaps need to be tamed, and most definitely ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.